Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. It's nice to see everybody here. So uh, we're making a transition now from uh, effort, right effort, to mindfulness in the Eightfold Path. And so this section that includes right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, the Buddha here and other teachers, what we're talking about is how is it that a human being can uh, remove all of the agitation from the mind? What is the process of freeing the mind from unhealthy mental habits like worrying, planning obsessively, judging, comparing, even doubting and wondering can be unproductive or unskillful, craving, hoping for things in the future, having different fantasies about how we'd like things to be. So I'm sure this sounds familiar. I mean, it's amazing how much of our day is filled with that endless, that repetitive churning of our minds. And so much of that is just unproductive. It really is a form of self-stimulation in the, in the most, I think, direct meaning. We are constantly stimulating the sense of self. That's what we're doing. So we, we all have uh, this concept called Mark, or for, you know, for you it might be Kevin, or you know, whatever, David. But we all have this idea of ourselves. And in a way, we're using the various patterns that we have. And that our patterns might be quite different person to person. Like some person's pattern might have a lot to do with being a victim. That may be the predominant pattern. Another person might be more uh, kind of aggressive stories or patterns. But we all have our particular patterns, but they're all doing the same thing, regardless of the the tone or quality of our pattern, mostly our patterns are stimulating, reinforcing the sense of self. And so this section of the path, spiritual path that we call samadhi, that includes right effort, right mindfulness. We usually translate samadhi as right concentration, but we could say this calming or this unification of the mind. All three of these work together to help us develop the talent, the capacity, to free the mind, at least temporarily, from being obsessed with these various patterns that are really, they're burning, they're agitating for the mind. Normally, we don't notice it because we're so used to it. We're so used to our mind spinning in this way. And even though it's exhausting and burning, we just keep doing it until we fall asleep at night, you know, totally exhausted, or we go unconscious one way or another. But the more quiet your life becomes, the more you begin to notice it. So if you've ever had times in your life without a lot of stimulation, without a lot of distraction, you'll start to notice how painful our thinking patterns are. Maybe some of you have like done some backpacking on your own or have gone on meditation retreats. Of course, that's a classic way to get to know 
how this is, how this, you know, how burdensome it can be to have a mind. But even just, you know, you just might have a quiet evening. Now, what normally happens is unconsciously we just fill the space. We, we start feeling quite disconcerted by what we're seeing in our mind. And we just find something to distract ourselves from the pain of our regular patterns. So this is one of the things that actually gets people to meditate. They just stumble upon this. You know, there's circumstances in their life are just right. And they notice how obsessive, how uh, out of control and unpleasant, unworkable uh, the mind is. And they think, oh, I, I should meditate and that will overcome it. But actually what ends up happening, at least in this particular tradition of practice, is not that we somehow learn to control that habit, but we're trying to understand what that is. It's the understanding that changes the habit. We're not like uh, exerting our will and sort of pushing that habit, suppressing that habit, although we might do that at times, but we're actually trying to understand it. So even though we talk about this part of practice as suppressing or freeing the mind of the hindrances of all these patterns of distraction and of agitation, it takes a lot of wisdom to do that. Because if we go at it in the wrong way, we actually generally end up creating more agitation. And I'm sure you've noticed that for those of you who've been sitting for a while. If you go at your meditation practice with some kind of warrior effort, it can be more of a distraction. Paul, if you want to bring, there's a nice spot up here if you want to bring it up here. You know, like, okay, mind, you know, okay, sleepiness, I'm going to slay you, or restlessness, I'm going to get rid of you. You know, or if you want to get rid of whatever pattern. And it ends up just creating more agitation. Even the, even the pattern of just sort of being ambivalent, like, well, I don't care what comes up. Even that can actually create more agitation. To sort of push in that view, oh, I don't care, when we really do care. Sort of pretending that we don't care, that it doesn't matter, is itself agitating. So this is our predicament. And this is what we've been talking about the last few weeks with right effort. And we'll continue talking about it for many more weeks as we talk about mindfulness and concentration as a way of freeing the mind up from these unproductive habits, these habits that weigh us down in life. So I'm thinking about mindfulness as a particular quality. You know, sometimes, I think I mentioned this last Wednesday, Sometimes when we use the word mindfulness, we're really using it as a designator for this whole path that we call, you know, the Buddhist path of awareness or this path of awakening. Sometimes we'll just say, well, yeah, I practice mindfulness in that general sense of meaning I'm doing a lot of different, cultivating a lot of different qualities to support wakefulness, to support insight, deepening of understanding. But now I'm talking about it more as a specific quality of our mind when I use mindfulness. So the Pali word is sati. And it has a sense of recollecting. 
So what are we remembering or recollecting? Well, we're remembering, in the most basic sense, we're recollecting, oh, this is how it is. So even right now as I'm talking, we can do this. So we can recognize right now, in this moment, this quality of the mind that can recollect that this moment is like this. And, and just to narrow that down, you can just use your visual experience if your eyes are open, or even if your eyes are closed, you know, you're probably having a visual experience. And you can just recollect, oh, seeing is like this. Now normally we're we can be unconscious of seeing. It, doesn't, it isn't that it takes a particular effort to see. In fact, once you start noticing that you're seeing, it's hard not to notice it. But it's easy to get distracted. It's like the scene, the, the scene doesn't go away, but the mind is fixated on something else, like what Mark's saying, or what's going on outside, or what am I going to do tomorrow? So we're not really aware, awake, to seeing. So we can practice now, as I'm talking, just to keep recollecting seeing is like this. So that's one part of mindfulness is just this basic recollection or remembering that experiencing is like this. In this particular case, the experiencing of seeing is like this. Then there's a second part, a more subtle part of mindfulness, which sometimes we'll call clear comprehension. It's the wisdom part of mindfulness. So it's not just the recollecting that seeing is like this, but it's an it's a appreciation or a comprehension that this scene, right? So is everybody recollecting seeing? So you're seeing. Now superficially, when we're seeing, we're very comfortable staying on the superficial level. So as I'm seeing, I'm recognizing the meditation hall at Common Ground, and I'm recognizing the people, the people here I recognize, and the people here I don't recognize and the shades that Amy made, you know, and my wife, and my friend Patrice, and the statue that Vera gave us. And so you see that this recollecting on this level is superficial in the sense that it really involves a story. It's this web of stories, of concepts. The concept, you know, of Virginia versus the concept of when. So there's all these the visual experience, I see the shape, I see the color, I see the form, but very quickly, almost uh, imperceptibly, that experience, that direct experience of seeing is translated into a story of Virginia. And even though I'm still seeing Virginia, the, what's really predominant is the story I have of who Virginia is. That's there. So part of the recollecting of seeing is a, a non-confusion. We're learning to be not confused by the concepts or ideas that arise based on the more direct experience of seeing in this case. Is that making sense? Is this making sense? So just go ahead and practice this as we're sitting here. So you're seeing, and you can almost do a a paradigm shift, or the way I often, the metaphor I like is like, when you look at a screen, you can pay attention to the screen and totally miss what's outside, 
or you can see right through the screen and focus on what's outside and it's almost like you don't see the screen anymore and it's the same way you can be looking seeing and and just on the level of concept oh here I am I'm at common ground and these are the people and I recognize some and, or it's almost like you relax the mind's fixation on the concepts and you just start noticing shape and color and you might have even notice this very distinct it's subtle but very distinct quality of thinking into the present moment because when we're in concepts the story where in a way we've removed ourselves. so as we come into this more and it feels a little funny because we're so used to being in the level of story when we just sink into the reality of shape and color and form it's like meaning drops away the conceptual meaning drops away we can do this with any sense experience hearing seeing thinking so keep recollecting seeing and you can just practice having a soft gaze you're not looking at anything you're just receiving color shape light And we know we're in this more direct experience of seeing when there's not a lot of meaning in the mind. There's no explanation. And you see there's a particular kind of working that this requires. Mindfulness requires this effort of not being confused by our concepts. Because there's no way to stop it when I look at David there's no way I can prevent my mind from recognizing so I see that particular shape and form and there's no way I can stop my mind from perceiving David so having the story of David who he is how I know him how we relate so it's really a practice of non-confusion of really staying in the moment and see this really gives us a lot of freedom because if we don't cultivate mindfulness we will go to the story and once we're in that box and it is a little bit like a box there's really no degrees of freedom but if I can stay in this world of present moment happening color shape sound smell taste tactile sensation thoughts as just thoughts just sort of things moving through the mind mental phenomena really not different than a sound of a bird except a thought is obviously you know something that's observed mentally seen as a movement in the mind so we're on this level then what I what that does is it allows concepts to come and go without their without the mind fixating or congealing around them it really allows for a lot more creativity and uh, more skillful responses in life without mindfulness then when I see David or see Wynn or see Patrice or somebody then the idea 
basically takes over and my next moment, my response or reaction in the next moment really comes out of whatever that box is, whatever that story that I have is. But if I'm at least to some degree touching in to what we could say more bare attention, bare awareness, then one of the things that's being known in that moment is that the story is just a story. So as I see Patrice or somebody, because I'm, I'm, I'm at least in moments, just little moments, just fractions of seconds, I'm just there with the shape, form, just the scene, then I'm also there to see that the story, when the story rises, that that's just a story. It's just a story. It's not really Patrice. My story is not really Patrice. It isn't sort of sum, it isn't the sum total of this person, which is what we normally think, right? It's like, if those of you who have a good friend or a partner, you know, when you bring that person to mind, doesn't it seem like that, whatever you're bringing to mind right now, that that's that person? But it's not. It's just a story. It comes nowhere close to being the person. It's not even a good approximation of the person. It's just a story being known in the mind. And so if we can see that, then that means we're not trapped by that story. That means that our way of relating to that person can be more fresh and real and beautiful because we're not trapped by our story. But we're not, it's not like we're, we somehow let go of all of our accumulated wisdom either because that story is still there to use. To, but we're not, not making it more than what it is but we're not making it, trying to make it less than it is. We're not trying to get rid of the story either. So mindfulness practice isn't somehow getting rid of all thought, because of course then we wouldn't be human beings. I mean, part of being a human being is this sort of um, this web of stories that is alive in us. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that unless we take it to be more than what it is. And then, then it can be quite debilitating for us. So keep this in mind as we work for the next few weeks um, in our home practice, both our formal sitting practice and then our daily life practice, just bringing more awareness, more wakefulness into all of our interactions, all of our moments, and as we talk together here about what we're learning about the experience of mindfulness over the next few weeks, this aspect of recollection, recollecting this is how it is, and part of that recollection then is this uh, process of non-confusion. So we're not confused by our interpretations, our thoughts. We're not pushing them away, but we're not confused. We're not making them more than what they are. Thoughts are just thoughts. Seeing is just seeing. Hearing is just hearing. Tactile sensations, sensing is just sensing. It's just what it is, not more, not less. So I'll just read from a few other sources here. This is from Joseph Goldstein, a book he wrote with uh, Jack Cornfield, 
called Seeking the Heart of Wisdom. And it's a section on mindfulness. I might have read this last Wednesday, I couldn't remember. The characteristic of mindfulness is one of non-superficiality. It is a penetrative and it is penetrative and profound. If we throw a cork into a stream, it will just bob up and down on the surface, while a stone thrown into the water will immediately sink. If we are mindful of an object, our awareness will sink deeply into it. Now this is interesting. So you can this is can be a little bit of a barometer. Of course, we still have to understand well what does he mean by thinking? But one thing we'll know when our awareness is superficial, so the mindfulness is not strong. So by superficial I mean that we're mostly floating along with concepts. And you know how that is. We all know how that is, even though we might not have really been awake. This is where we are most of the time, where one thought leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And in a way, we're just sort of floating along. And we're not really sinking in. We can completely miss our life. An example I like to, to use, because people relate to this so easily, is you could drive home from work, one thought leading to another, and never once notice that the body is sitting. Never once notice seeing, you know, as you see the traffic turning, you know, just the gripping of the steering wheel or the sound of the air hitting the car. Or to be listening to the radio and not be aware of hearing, but just be lost in whatever the story is that you're listening to. So there's this quality of thinking, and like maybe you notice when I gave the example of seeing that with bare attention, just seeing shape, color, form, not being confused by our interpretation. You might actually directly experience a sense of sinking. It's almost like we could say we're sinking into the present moment. But it's not even like the present moment is something. So that's a little bit, you know, language is hard here. It's not like we're actually sinking into the present moment. What's happening is we're uh, uh, ignorance or delusion or concept is evaporating. That's really what's happening. So that's all that ever happens in spiritual life. In this path, all that ever happens, we're simply cultivating skillful means to have moments where our layer, our sort of surface reality of concept evaporates. And then we wake up to what's always here. It may seem like a mystical experience, but in a way it's the ground of our existence that we just miss all the time because we're on the level of concept and most of that energy of concept, that perpetuation, in Buddhism we call it papancha, this sort of endless churning of the mind, is driven by this sort of deep need for the sense of self to be stimulated. And we're willing to stimulate that sense of self even if it's very painful. We'd rather have a sense of self out of habit. We'd rather have a sense of self, self even if it's painful than to have no sense of self. So we could be repeating 
very negative stories, you know, a lot of self-hatred, as a way of perpetuating, re-stimulating the sense of self, or some grandiose story about myself over and over again, which is also painful, by the way. If we, I'll just continue with this paragraph, if we are mindful of an object, our awareness will sink deeply into it. As long as mindfulness is present, the object of observation is kept in view. We are not forgetful or half-hearted in our attentiveness. The mind comes face to face with the object, with directness, focus, depth, and sensitivity. Mindfulness also manifests as a protection because when we are mindful, we are protected from the force of the conditioned habits of grasping, condemning, and forgetfulness, which create pain and confusion in our lives. And this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, a, a New Yorker who went to Sri Lanka a long time ago and became a monk and ended up becoming a great wonderful translator of many of the Buddhist texts into English. He's now semi-retired, living at a monastery in New Jersey, Bodhi Monastery. And you can go online, if you Google Bhikkhu Bodhi or Bodhi Monastery, B-O-D-H-I, Monastery, you'll get some Dharma talks because you can download here or download printed versions of some of his talks. He's a really great practitioner and scholar. And so in his book on the Eightfold Path, he says, the task of right mindfulness is to clear up the cognitive field. Mindfulness brings to light experience in its pure immediacy. It reveals the object as it is before it has been plastered over with conceptual paint, overlaid with interpretations. To practice mindfulness is thus a matter not so much of doing, but undoing not thinking, not judging, not associating, not planning, not imagining, not wishing. All these doings of ours are modes of interference, ways the mind manipulates experience and tries to establish its dominance. Mindfulness undoes the knots and tangles of these doings by simply noting. It does nothing but note, watching each occasion of experience as it arises, stands, and passes away. In the watching, there is no room for clinging, no compulsion to saddle things with our desires. There is only a sustained contemplation of experience in its bare immediacy, carefully and precisely and persistently. I like that paragraph because even though it seems, you know, when someone sees somebody meditating, it seems like such a passive activity. You can get a sense when you hear Bhikkhu Bodhi's paragraph how hyper-energetic it is. So part of meditation practice over time with practice is learning to cultivate this hyper-sensitive, hyper-energetic state that it arises in combination with a deep sense of ease and acceptance and forgiveness. So often, you know, when you hear people talk especially in beginning classes, we talk about balancing this alertness, this brightness, this interest, this hyper-sensitivity with this great sense of ease and relaxation and acceptance and forgiveness and just letting things be, this non-doing. 
So we're doing both. And there's no end to how much of this ease we want to cultivate, just like there's no end to the degree of brightness, interest, precision, carefulness. Carefulness is a good word, except nowadays when we hear the word be careful, we get a little tight. But if we just change it around and we say full of care, that's actually, careful is a really good word for mindfulness. If we want to be really full of care, like not to miss anything, really be there. I like the word intimate. You know, to be intimate with what's predominant in the moment. So in a way, that means being undefended. We're not putting a spin or trying to make it different than it is. I came across this really nice quote from Emily Dickinson. She said, life is so startling there is little time for anything else. Life is so startling there is little time for anything else. Now imagine if we'd lived with that understanding or that awareness. How much we'd learn just by being more awake. But isn't it true that we go through most of our life thinking there's nothing to learn here? Yeah, I mean, just think about how many times we've driven from A to B or walked from A to B, thinking I'm, my life is on hold until I get to B, you know, or my life is on hold until I'm 21, or until I'm in college, or until I have kids, or until I retire, or until I, <laughs> you know, we keep putting it off as if this moment is irrelevant. But when I get home after this program tonight. Then I can, then I'll really be alive, you know. But we just put it off. We keep putting it off. So I'll end tonight by spending a few minutes talking about the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse, probably one of the most famous discourses the Buddha gave on mindfulness practice. And it's, of course, he repeated it in many different ways, but there's this basic rendition. And the way it begins is the Buddha says, um, and this is often the discourses start with the phrase, thus have I heard, because Ananda, the Buddha's cousin, who was also a monk, um, evidently had a really good memory. And he was the Buddha's attendant. Uh, he was much younger than the Buddha, so he took care of the Buddha for I think by 25 years and uh, he had this amazing capacity to remember what the Buddha said so after the Buddha died Ananda uh, there was this big convention of the senior monks and nuns probably and they decided to uh, clear up like what the Buddha said so they all would be teaching from the same source so Ananda ended up sort of reciting a lot of the talks he heard because he was always there when the Buddha wandered about. And they and so his talks always began, Thus I have I heard. So it's the Ananda or another one of the senior students of the Buddha recalling what they heard the Buddha say. Thus have I heard. On one occasion the Buddha was living in Kuru a country, a town at a town of the Kurus named Kamasandama. There he addressed the practitioners thus. Practitioners, venerable sir, they replied. The Buddha th said this. Practitioners, there is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, 
for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, the ending of suffering, namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, practitioners. A practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away greed and grief for the world. He abides or she abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away greed and grief for the world. She abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away greed and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away greed and grief for the world. So that's how this talk begins. And then he goes on to talk about each of these four places in experience to pay attention. Pay attention to the body. Here the body means the five physical senses. Physical sensations, sounds, smells, tastes, and sights. The other three foundations of mindfulness have to do with three aspects of the mind. Feeling, which means noticing the pleasantness and unpleasantness. Mind, which means noticing how the mind is colored. Like, is there greed in the mind now? Or is there the absence of greed? maybe generosity in the mind. Is there aversion or non-aversion or kindness in the mind? Is there doubt or non-doubt in the mind? So just noticing the coloring in the mind. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness, people talk about it in different ways, but the translation I prefer or I find useful is the fourth foundation is we're looking at the mind with a particular angle. We're trying to see what's present in the mind and whether what it is that's present is skillful in the sense that it's leading to the absence of suffering, to freedom from suffering, or whether what's in the mind is unskillful. So if I'm observing my mind, I might notice whether there's desire there or craving. That's one observation. But in observing the craving, I could see directly in the experience, in the moment, I could see how the craving is leading to suffering. That's the fourth foundation is really seeing how whatever is present in the mind is either leading to suffering, more contraction, more weight, or it's leading to more freedom, more spaciousness or buoyancy in the mind. Okay? So those are the four, and I'll talk about each of these four over the next four weeks. But I wanted to end by reading the last part of this discourse the Buddha gave. He says, Practitioners, If anybody should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven years, that's a long time, to be mindful, (laughs) one of two fruits could be expected for her. Either final liberation here and now, liberation from greed, anger, and delusion. So living with a mind unburdened with any kind of aversiveness, any kind of greediness or clinging, any kind of confusion. Or what they call in this tradition non-returner, which means it's just a stage of enlightenment where there's still some some sort of habit energy that's not so wholesome, still present in the mind, but very close to having it uprooted. And then he keeps going on now. Let alone seven years, practitioners, if anybody should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for six years, 
for five years, for four years, for three years, for two years, for one year, one of two fruits could be expected for him or her. He goes on like he did before. Let alone one year, practitioners, if anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven months, six months, five months, for four months, for three months, for two months, for only one month or half a month. And then he goes on to say, for seven days. If you just do it for seven days, you can expect either full, the, the full uprooting of our habits of contraction, our habits of suffering, or very close, so that that will happen relatively soon. So here the Buddha is trying to inspire us. Now, I remember Jack Hornfield tells us a, a, a funny story. Some of you might know Jack Hornfield. He's a well-known author and a, a Vipassana or insight meditation teacher in this tradition that we practice here at Common Ground. And uh, he went to um, Thailand in the late 60s and ordained for about five or six years as a Buddhist monk in Thailand and then practiced some other places as well. But uh, when he showed up to Achan Chah's monastery in Thailand and ordained as an ordained monk, he read this, you know, he was reading the discourses, and he read this, oh, seven days, I can do this, you know, how hard can it be, you know? So he said, okay, mindful, you know, breathing in, breathing out, walking, moving, you know, and then, of course, he'd get distracted. He'd say, okay, now seven days begins, right? <laughs> and you try, and you're good for a couple of moments, you know? And you go, okay, okay, fine, now seven days. But it's exactly that kind of attitude which is really useful. So we just say, okay, my seven days begins now. And then when we get lost, instead of judging ourselves, instead of spinning, right, that papancha, having failed, being miserable, or blaming the Buddha for not giving us good instructions, or blaming common ground or Mark or something, we just start over. Okay, now the seven days begin. And lo and behold, if we have that kind of cheerful, willing to start over attitude, we're actually get somewhere. And it doesn't actually matter whether we get to seven days. Because what we'll find is when we start getting to 10 seconds or two minutes, our life really starts to change. Just having moments of mindfulness is quite profound. This is, uh, even though we might have a sense of what I'm talking about tonight, when we really have a few moments of mindfulness, it's like really, uh, um, it's, a, it's a profoundly beautiful experience to really be there. Probably many people in this room have had those moments and remember them. Everyone's had those moments. But probably maybe not everybody in the room remembers having those moments. We want to remember, we want to know when we're mindful that we're mindful. Because then we, begin, then we can actually begin to cultivate this wholesome habit of mindfulness in a conscious way instead of it just happening every once in a long while by accident. We want to understand how it happens so that we can create the ground for more and more of these moments of mindfulness. I'll just finish this paragraph here. If anyone should develop these four foundations of mindfulness in such a way for seven days, one of two fruits could be expected for her either final liberation here and now, or if there's a trace of clinging left, the, the non-return. So that's the third stage of enlightenment.
So it was with reference to this that it was said, practitioners, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, which means the cessation of suffering, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That is what the Buddha said. The practitioners were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So some, you know, in Buddhist culture, in Asia, you know, some people take the teachings and they practice them, they put them into practice. But a lot of people, it's really practiced more like a folk religion, where it's about being devoted to the Buddha. So this discourse, a lot of the, the lay people, for example, and some of the monks and nuns, they're not really practicing meditation. They, It's funny how it developed in Asia, and there's this sort of feeling like, well, it's not for me. I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, holy enough or special enough to be able to actually do the practice. So I'll just be devoted to those who do it. And I'll be devoted to the teachings without actually putting in practice. So they almost use the Satipatthana Sutta, this discourse. It's called the Satipatthana Sutta. They almost use it as a, like a way of protecting themselves. They're repeated, they're chanted at times, maybe when someone's dying or maybe at a, another sort of important occasion, or they invite some monks or nuns over to chant it for them. But the important thing, of course, is not to honor this teaching. The important thing is actually to put this into practice. And everybody here, you know, if you're healthy enough to show up to Common Ground on Wednesday night, you're healthy enough, you have enough wherewithal, enough stability in your life to begin to take steps to bring this into your life. In formal ways, when you do your sitting practice, and then of course, as important as your formal sitting practice is you're bringing it into your life wherever you can remember it. Wherever the thought arises, whenever the thought arises, oh yeah, I could be mindful now. Then just do whatever it is you're doing. You don't have to stop doing what you're doing. But just bring that quality of mindfulness so you're recollecting, oh, this is how it is, washing dishes. This is how it is. This is how it is, not getting confused by my interpretation. I don't like washing dishes. I want to watch TV. So not getting confused by that idea, that's just a thought. That's just a version in the mind. Scrubbing, scrubbing, moving, warmth, hearing the bubbles pop even, hearing the water flow. We can be like Emily Dickinson suggests, you know, um, startled, so startled by the present moment that there's no room for aversion, for craving, for doubt. Literally, in a moment of mindfulness, those, those, uh, burdensome mind states disappear. They can't ex coexist with a mind that's fully present. So you can just take that as a hypothesis this week. See if you notice in a moment of full presence, if there's any unwholesome qualities in the mind, like any aversion, greed, doubt, confusion. And this includes being fully present with aversion when you're fully present with aversion, is there any weight to the aversion? Is there any bite to it? When you're fully present with lust, is there any weight? 
just take that, don't take it as dogma, just explore that. Use that as a way to help you contemplate experience. So we have uh, 11 or 12 minutes now for people to share from your own experience, if you'd like, or any questions you have about the talk tonight that come to mind. Get your name. Uh, that's a really good question. So, uh, what we there's there's an underlying assumption that we're not seeing, which is that the confusion or that the busyness of the mind is itself uh, is something that we can't just see as something happening in the moment. We, what, what happens is it arises, like the doubt or the confusion or the lack of clarity, the fogginess, it arises, and we think it's in the way of mindfulness, of doing our practice. But actually it's just something happening. And it's as good of an object as the breath coming in, feeling that touching of the nostrils or that movement of the belly or the sound of a bird. So we can be mindful of doubt, we can be mindful of fuzziness, we can know anything. It's like the mind, the mindful mind is like a mirror, and a mirror reflects whatever's in front of it. It doesn't matter whether it's clear or unclear. We can be very clear about confusion. I know it sounds contradictory, but we don't think it, so we get, we, you know, it's like that's a very confusing thing for us when, when the mind is fuzzy or foggy, and we just assume it's a problem. So if you can just catch that and see, oh, it's just this. Naming could be very useful if you can give it a name. Oh, confusion is like this. Can this be okay? Can there just be confusion in the mind? And if you're using the noting technique where you're actually uh, using a mental label to note experience, and you don't know what to call it, you can just say this, ah, this is like this. That could be enough of a label or a note. What else comes to mind? Any thoughts or questions that you have? When you were talking about the drive home and the car missing and everything, you know, what, what comes to mind is, oh yeah, yeah, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that, so bad things. But I think some people, and I think, they're not very present, but they're happy. <laughs> In their notes, they're thinking about old friends, High school, they're thinking about times in the future that are good, not in an ego way, mm -hmm. not, not plans for world domination. So, do you think that there can be people like this who can be not be present and be happy, or is it always that if you're not present, that even those people you should tell them, no, you need to be present, <laughs> even though you're happy mm -hmm. in your dreams that are positive? Yeah. Did you hear him in the back? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, uh, I mean, the real answer to that, of course, is not to just take what I say as the answer, but to, that's just a wonderful thing to explore in our own life. Like, when we're kind of, you know, doing something wholesome, like uh, really excited about building a playground for our kids, your kids, or something like that in the backyard, or, or doing some project that's pretty wholesome, getting involved and thinking about it, and talking to people about it, and, 
and you just feel the, the joy and the energy involved with it and the excitement and you know there's a little bit to really explore what that what is it that's in the mind and sort of the tease out the different qualities that are in the mind it isn't just one thing there's just all kinds of different intentions that are coming and going in the mind and qualities that are coming and going in the mind and some of those qualities are wholesome in the sense that they're not going to lead to weight or tension and some of them are unwholesome that there's some there's some bite to them and you want to pay attention so everybody has an incentive to pay attention even people who have a lot of happiness and joy have this incentive because we'll notice even though the the sort of the mind is sort of just paying attention to the you know positive let's just call it positive parts that are in the mind it doesn't mean that we're not burdened by the, the negative parts the parts that are unskillful and burdensome so just because we don't know we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering I mean this is a silly example but you know how it is you can be in your your kitchen just sort of doing your thing and all of a sudden the refrigerator goes off and you go oh that feels nice but a moment before you were not burdened you weren't conscious of being burdened by that buzzing sound of the refrigerator and this is true in our lives now we are all burdened by our accumulated uh, stress and our our accumulated habits of worrying and fear even if our life is going quite well there's the fear that it's not always going to be this way everybody whether you know it or not is a, is burdened by your death and a lot of our activities is avoiding noticing how we're confused by the fact that we're going to die and we're concerned about that so all of that is still alive in us whether or not we're conscious of it so one of the things mindfulness does is it starts opening up opening us up to all the stuff we're not knowing not feeling and yeah you're right people don't necessarily want to go there but nobody's making them go there but what we can say to people is check it out and see if you find the practice useful and some people may choose not to go there not to develop mindfulness for whatever reason but I think from my own experience I've never found that mindfulness was not useful I can't imagine a situation I'd rather know how it is than uh, invest in distraction even if it's a relatively wholesome distraction because I have learned from my life of paying attention I've learned that even very wholesome distractions are a great weight they have to be protected they have to be maintained there's no end to them we have to keep spinning and that spinning is a burden so part of getting a lot of confidence in this path is tasting the 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 peace of freedom or tasting the the real sublime happiness of peace or stillness in the mind when we have that experience of stillness or peace in the mind it really undermines our, the attractiveness of uh, wholesome pleasant thinking which compared to self-hatred is really nice but compared to stillness 
is is actually seen for what it is, which is it's agitating, it's a burden. But don't again, don't take this as some truth. Use the, these words to get interested in your own mind and uh, see see what you see, and bring it back to the group and share it with the group. It's really good to hear from people. So we have two minutes left. If maybe people have something to say about that or other comments or questions that people have. gaps here. We can just let everything sink, right? Just a moment. People sometimes are a little disconcerted when they begin because as we, like maybe just in the last few seconds, you notice as we're sort of sitting here and we begin, we hear these instructions, and so we just practice opening and we can feel a little agitation or fear. And in a way, because our habit energy is around distraction, it's and, and that's our predominant habit energy, it's going to keep pulling us and it's going to use all kinds of hooks like being afraid like being afraid of space. So if you go home tonight, and you can just do this if you'd like as an experiment. Uh, if you're with, if you live with people, just excuse yourself for a few minutes. Just go sit somewhere. And don't try to meditate. Don't try to not meditate. Don't try to do anything. Just sit there and just open to the five physical senses and thinking. So these are the six gates of experience, right? We know the world through the five senses, physical senses, and through knowing the mind. And you just open to those six things and notice how the resistance to that, like you want to do something more. We really start to see, oh, the mind wants to get lost. The mind doesn't want to be open. It doesn't want to be mindful. It wants to get consumed by some activity, get lost in something. And then just appreciate, oh, this is the force of habit. There's nothing actually scary about being open. The only thing, the only reason there's a problem doing this practice is because there's so much habit energy about filling in that space with, with ceaseless mental activity. And that's just how it is. We're all basically in the same boat. So let's leave it here and we'll pick it up next week. It's really important to feel empowered to experiment. Don't feel like, no one should go home thinking, I don't know enough about this practice to begin to explore it. All we're doing, everyone knows what it means to be open. And you just go from there. And then, of course, some of you have been coming, so you know some specific techniques, and you can just incorporate them. But mostly it's good just to use uh, your natural confidence that you just bring your awareness to work, you put it to work with this one purpose of understanding how it is. Understanding what it means to have a body and a mind. It's really that simple. So it's exciting. Something to be uh, kind of enthused about. So 
So we'll let go of the words now. Just take a few seconds to breathe a couple times. And to feel this body sitting, even if it's achy. And to appreciate the people here in this room, how nice it is to have a community to practice with, to appreciate these teachings that have been passed down by men and women for so many generations, every person doing the best they can to practice and to share what they've come to know. And we can let this appreciation inspire us to do it the best we can, given our busy lives, just to do the best we can and to practice for the benefit of all beings, not just for our own well-being, but we practice for our friends, our partners, our family members, practice for all beings without exception. so that our lives, our practice, supports the happiness and peace and the freedom from suffering for all beings without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.